If you'd take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to be looking at chapter 5 today, at the end of the chapter. Before I read this, I want you to remember that this is uh, before the sermon and not after, so don't close your Bibles up and get ready to say amen after I read this. You'll understand what I mean in a minute. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to be reading verses 23 to 28. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole body and spirit, soul, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Well, uh, what a wonderful weekend. What a wonderful few weeks we've had here at Grace Baptist Church. I'm very excited uh, to be once again smack dab in the middle of Balloon Festival. And uh, welcome to you if you're here visiting from that Balloon Festival. We're glad that you've joined us on this Sunday morning. It's a great opportunity for us as a church to show forth the love of Christ as we serve the guests that come for Balloon Festival. Yesterday was an amazing day. We got to celebrate the marriage of Matthias and Madison, and yeah, I'm still buzzing from, from that glory. And who can forget our membership extravaganza from a few weeks ago uh, when we got to welcome in eight new people into our church membership, including two by baptism. That was certainly a red-letter day in the history of Grace Baptist Church. And I'm just uh, still glowing from all of these things. When I think about all the things that bring me the most delight in this life, they all have a common denominator. And that is, they all have to do with the body of Christ. I have to agree with the Gaithers. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Now, our, our Heavenly Father has been so kind to us to adopt us in Christ, our elder brother. And when we get saved, what we discover is that we've also been united to a whole slew of spiritual siblings. Once we were orphans, but now we've been brought by grace into this great big family. And it's a, let's just admit, it's a family that can be a little bit quirky, a uh, little weird, but mostly it's wonderful and I don't know if you feel the same way that I do. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Now, as we come to this last section of this first letter to the Thessalonians, it's very hard to miss the, the warm, familial tone that permeates through these final paragraphs. In many ways, this last section of the letter kind of reprises some of the content, some of the themes, and some of the feel of the of the stuff that he opened with, if you can remember all the way back to chapter 1. Paul certainly strikes that same note of love and affection that he had there at the beginning, like when he wrote in that first chapter, verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had been very dear to us. I... I I love that, that language. It just shows for so clearly the heart of Paul for these people. 
And perhaps the most obvious indication of this warm, familial tone is Paul's frequent use of the word brother. I don't know if you've noticed this as we've been going along, but that word, or some form of it, has been peppered throughout this epistle. 18 times, in fact, and it's not a very long letter. And a sixth of these occurrences of the word brother are concentrated in these last four verses that Ethan read for us a few minutes ago. So it's very clear that this sign-off section is to be understood in that cozy context, the context of church family and brotherly affection. Now, I'm, I'm happy, uh, I'll just say this, I'm very happy to be speaking to a congregation that doesn't insist on gender-inclusive language. Okay, that's a silly, modern hang-up that didn't plague the, the biblical authors. Okay, they understood, as do you, that terms like man or brothers can be used generically to include, you know, both males and females. So when Paul writes brothers, it's not because he's a male chauvinist pig and uh, that he's only really speaking to the dudes in the congregation. No, you understand quite well that he's speaking to men and women, brothers and sisters, all of them making up together the family of God. So we won't, we won't get tripped up by that, I trust. So it's in this family context that we will, we're going to work through this final section of 1 Thessalonians, and we'll do so under four headings. Four headings. I'll give them to you as we go along. I don't want to show you all my hand like I sometimes do. Let's look first at family prayers. I will tell you this, though, because I know you, this stuff worries you. This is going to be by far the longest point. It, this is basically going to be the whole sermon. Okay, so, so just relax. I, I know what control freaks you can tend to be, so I'm just going to put that out there. Now you can relax. And let's talk about family prayers. It was standard in the letter-writing customs of the first century to have a closing section where you would express your well wishes to the recipient, the person that you were writing to. And so this letter to the Thessalonians has that standard form, but with very different content. You see, because the best that a person of the world can do is to wish someone well. That's really all that they've got. It's nice, I suppose, that they want good things to happen to their friends and their family, but there's really nothing of substance that stands behind that desire. And so all they can do is wish, you know, like wish upon a star. I hope that the universe will bring it about, whatever that's supposed to mean. But when the Christian desires something for someone, I want you to see that there's substance behind it. Okay, there, there's someone behind it. There, there's a sovereign power, there's a personal being that we have access to that can actually bring about the things that we desire and the things that we request. Therefore, in the New Testament, when you come across this last section of the letters, the standard well wishes portion of a letter, that's been radically transformed 
into a closing prayer section. We're not just wishing you well, recipient. We're praying these things for you to a personal God. And this is what a family does. We, we pray for each other. We don't simply wish the best for each other. We intercede for one another with tears, sometimes sweating drops as if they were blood. We present our prayers and our requests before our loving Heavenly Father on behalf of our brothers and sisters in our family. What should we be praying for? Let me ask you that. What should we be praying for? I remember uh, Russ Moore when he was a professor at Southern Seminary. I remember him observing that in many churches, the, the time for sharing prayer requests sounds like the nurse's station at a hospital during shift change. You know, they're giving updates on Mabel's knee and uh, Mr. Jones's back and so on and so forth. Now, that observation is not to say, don't, don't hear me wrong, I, we're not saying that you shouldn't be praying about one another's physical needs. It's just, the observation is just to note that we often prioritize and emphasize the physical stuff, the circumstantial stuff. And if that is indeed our tendency, then it's helpful, I think, to see what the Apostle Paul emphasizes and to see, we, we get a sneak peek into what he's praying for us. And its placement here at the end of the letter, I think, is very instructive because we know by now, by this stage of the game, we are well aware of all of the needs that this particular congregation had. There's an, any number of things that Paul could be praying for these people, specifically about their circumstances, what have you. But at the end of the day, at the end of the letter, what this all boils down to is one request, and it's found in verse 23. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole soul and spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a prayer. That's, that's a good prayer. Friends, if you don't know how to pray for someone, if you're stuck, pray that. There's not, you couldn't pray anything better than that. But I think we will be able to pray this and pray it better if we can understand it better. And so let's take a, let's take a look at this prayer from four aspects, okay, four C's. These are subpoints under point number one. That These are not spelled out for you in your bulletin. Um, I threw a curveball at you. Four C's that we can seek to understand about this prayer. First of all, what's the content of this prayer? Well, when you boil it all down, Paul's praying for the Thessalonians' sanctification. That's a, maybe a big word, theological word, so we'll simplify it. And I actually happen to like the definition of sanctification that the teachers used in our summer kids' club. By the way, Jenna, thank you for, for putting that together. And thank you for all of the servants that, that work so hard and so joyfully this summer to be a blessing to the kids in our congregation and our community. Um, but the, you teachers, um, you 
gave this definition of sanctification in Summer Kids Club, and it's this. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I like that. That's, that's it. It's a process whereby we resemble less and less of ourselves, our natural sinful selves, and we take on more and more the image of our Savior in our actions, in our thoughts, in our attitudes. The root word in sanctification has to do with holiness. Ification indicates it's a process. Sancta, the root, means holy, means holiness. So we're talking here about holiness. So we take that to, to mean that Paul is praying that our lives would be characterized more and more by holiness rather than sin. That's your greatest need. And that's mine. Holiness. You, you need holiness way more than you need for that pain to be gone. Or for that relationship to be repaired. Or for that persecution to cease. And in fact, what, what we often find is that those are the circumstances that the Lord tends to use in order to do this good work in us. Again, I'm not saying that we should never pray and that it's wrong to pray about physical and circumstantial things, but sanctification certainly needs to regain its rightful place in the priority of our prayers. In the second place, we could ask of Paul's prayer, what's the coverage the coverage. And if you want a mental image, you think about one of those maps of the United States that cell phone companies like to, to use. They're always showing you these maps, bragging about it, uh, whether it's in pink or green or orange or red or whatever. It, it's a coverage map and it, it shows, it, it's supposed to indicate where in the country you, you have, say, you know, the best 5G service. And if you went with this particular company, uh, you know, their map would almost certainly be totally red or pink with 5G coverage. And then they show you the other guy's map and it's really pretty white, maybe with a little, little spots there, here and there. But then it's weird because if you go to the other guy's map, theirs is all green with just a little bit of red in it. I, I can't figure it out. But you get that image in your head, okay, of coverage. Think of that coverage map and then consider sanctification as cell service. What is Paul praying for us in verse 23? That we would be sanctified completely. Okay, Great, easy enough, but what does that mean? And this, I, I wonder if you know this already, this is not an easy question to answer. This is something that there's been a lot of confusion, a lot of debate on, especially over the last couple of hundred years. Does Paul expect that we could reach a point of perfection in this life? You know, a... a, a a, a place where we are completely free from sin? That, that might sound ludicrous to you, but 
You need to know that large swaths of the Christian church believe that based largely on this verse. This is one of John Wesley's legacies. And this teaching is perpetuated today to, to greater or lesser extents by the Wesleyans, by the Methodists, the United Methodists, Holiness Pentecostals, the Church of the Nazarene. It goes on and on. And I'll let you know, I'll let you hear this from the horse's mouth, just so that you don't think that I'm making this up. Here's section of 10.1 from the current Nazarene manual. Quote, we believe that entire sanctification is that act of God subsequent to regeneration by which believers are made free from original sin or depravity and brought into a state of entire devotement to God and the holy obedience of love made perfect. This experience is also known by various terms representing its different phases such as Christian perfection, perfect love, heart unity, the baptism with or the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the blessing, and Christian holiness. Here's an excerpt from the Confession of Faith of the United Methodist Church. Quote, entire sanctification is a state of perfect love, perfect righteousness, and true holiness, which every regenerate believer may obtain by being delivered from the power of sin, by loving God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by loving one's neighbor as oneself. Through faith in Jesus Christ, this gracious gift may be received in this life, both gradually and instantaneously, and should be sought earnestly by every child of God. End quote. Friends, I want to say this as respectfully as I know how, because I, I, I love... Um, believers from all of these denominations, you should not expect to instantaneously experience freedom from original sin. You should not expect the enjoyment of perfect righteousness in this life. What Paul has in mind is progressive sanctification. Not, not a perfect love, but as he puts it in a parallel prayer that we've looked at, this is at the end of chapter 3, he puts it this way. What he's asking is that we would be increasing in love, even abounding in love, both for one another and for all. To be sure, there is a day coming when we will be changed instantaneously, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when, when seeing our Savior face to face, we will be like him in that moment. This is what we call glorification. And we look forward with eager expectation to the day of Christ Jesus when we will, in fact, be made perfect by his, his righteous operation. Now, we could look at another way that the Bible describes that great day. And many of us, having attended a beautiful wedding yesterday, this one might land a little better on us. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
that she might be holy and without blemish. That's wonderful. Christ, that's depicting Christ's relationship with his people as his bride. And his work on his bride has past and present and future aspects. But presently, what is Christ doing? He's sanctifying us. He's, he's working holiness in us. And on our wedding day, if you could put it that way, right before we walk down the aisle, he will bring to completion that, that great work that he has been doing all along so that we might be presented to him as a pure, spotless, radiant bride. Now, it's, it's very clear that the Apostle Paul has this day in mind as he's speaking about, as he's praying this. So you can read at the end of verse 23 that the goal is our blamelessness at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorification then for perfection, sanctification now for preparation. Now, let's go back to the coverage map for a second. If Paul's not praying for our present perfection, what exactly does he mean by complete sanctification? And let me see if I can explain this by way of an opposite analogy. Okay, I'll... I'm not sure if this will work, but I'm going to try it, and you can just be gracious with me. Around here, we believe in a, in a doctrine called total depravity. Okay, this, this doctrine is sometimes misunderstood by people as saying that all human beings are as bad as they possibly could be. That somehow, we all, all of us, you know, perpetually perpetrate perfect evil but this is obviously not true right not not any one of us is as bad as we are as we have the capacity for as we're you know capable of being the total in total depravity doesn't refer to the degree of our depravity it refers to the extent of our depravity so what total depravity does mean is that sin and corruption has reached into every aspect of our being. Our hearts, our minds, our wills, our affection, everything has been poisoned by sin. Okay, so that's the, anal that's the opposite analogy. Think about this. In the same way, but in the opposite direction, the, the Wesleyan holiness movement has misunderstood the completion of sanctification as being in degree. Whereas what I believe that Paul is praying for us here has to do with the extent of our sanctification. What he's praying is that holiness would infiltrate all that we are. That holiness coverage would extend as far as our depravity has gone. In other words, that his blessings might flow to us far as the curse is found. So, so Paul prays, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now that we've made it to this far, this far, there's another pitfall. This is a tough verse, actually. There's been a lot of... Uh, a lot of discussion 
A lot of ink spilled on one verse. A prayer at that. Some people use this verse to prove that human beings are actually tripartite. And what I mean by that is that, you know, most theologians, I would say, believe scripture to teach that man has two components, if you could put it that way. That's putting it crudely. But there's an immaterial part called a soul that makes us up and also a material part called a body. That's the physical component. But as I say, some people think that we're made up of three parts, a soul, a spirit, and a body. So that, if you take that view, you have to make the distinction between a soul and a spirit. And, and they make that distinction by saying usually something like, you know, um, our soul is the essence of a living being, um, has to do with our capacity for life and emotion. And our spirit is the, is the component that, that has the capacity to connect us with God. It's, it's more of a spiritual relationship with God as apart from just being. The, now, the problem with making that kind of a distinction between soul and spirit is that scripture, in lots of different places, uses those two words interchangeably. Okay, so I'll, gi I'll give you just one example. It, it happens in the Song of Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So that, that's not Mary glorifying the Lord with one part of her humanity and then rejoicing in God with another part of her humanity. That's just classic Hebrew poetry, which is characterized by parallelism, where the same sentiment is expressed, albeit in a slightly different way. And I could give you many, many more examples of the interchangeable use of soul and spirit in scripture. It doesn't seem like the biblical authors are making that distinction. But back to our passage, I'm sure that in this prayer for us, Paul is not intending to, you know, lay out a, a theology of man. You know, this is not the place for him to set forth a discourse on the constituent parts of man. And neither was Jesus I don't think, when, when he says that we ought to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. We don't say, whoa, whoa, Jesus, are you saying that there's like, you can divide me up into all of those components? No, I think in both cases, they would, they would they're simply just stacking up words for rhetorical effect to highlight, say, how we love, our, we're supposed to love the Lord which is with our whole being. And, and in our case, how sanctification ought to pervade our entire being. Well, let, I'll, I'll move on from there uh, for the sake of time, but if you have any more questions about that, you can ask me later. Let's, let's look thirdly at the cause of our sanctification. How, how is holiness ever going to happen? I hope it's obvious that we have a role to play, you know, in fighting sin, in cultivating holiness, 
the kind of holiness without which no one is going to ever see the Lord. And in many ways, this, this, is a, this is what a big portion of this letter was designed to do, to instruct us, to exhort new Christians on how to pursue holiness in very specific areas, in, in so many different areas. But let me just give you one example in terms of our sexual purity. Listen again to chapter 4, verse 3. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That verse explicitly explains what sanctification looks like in practical terms. And it also, at the same time, makes very clear that we have an active role to play in pursuit of that holiness. So understand that, okay? But as I suggested last week, you know, perhaps all of these commands are stacking up on you and, and you look at your own life and your own experience, you, you look at your inner resources, your own capabilities, and you think to yourself, how am I possibly going to make it? Holiness just seems so elusive. You, maybe, maybe you totally resonate with what Ada Habershon wrote when you sing, I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And so Paul is exactly right to bring our need for holiness directly to the one who has the power to accomplish it. In prayer, we go to the ultimate cause of sanctification. Listen to how Paul prays. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And in the original language that the New Testament was written in, that Paul would have written this letter in, that word himself is trotted up right to the very beginning of the sentence so that it gets all of the emphasis. Himself. Himself. May God himself sanctify you completely. Yes, you have work to do when it comes to your holiness, but praise the Lord. Your sanctification is a work that God himself must accomplish. And this leads directly into our final sub-point. Under the first point, concerning this, this prayer for our sanctification, we've seen the content, the coverage, the cause, and now, friends, look at the confidence. What is Paul's confidence as he prays to God for our holiness? And he is confident. He says at the end of verse 24 that God will surely do this. How can he be so sure? Two reasons. Because of God's call and because of God's career. Because of God's call and because of his career. We can be confident that this prayer is going to be answered because of God's call. And I don't know about you, but my mind immediately goes to that glorious passage in Romans chapter 8. 
a portion of scripture that's been called the golden chain of redemption. There Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, pause right there. Predestined for what, do you think? What, what was God's purpose for us before the foundation of the earth? Was it that we would become Christians? That we would, you know, just enter through that initial door? That, that's what some of you who are here today think, by the way. You say, what's the big deal? You guys are taking all of this way too seriously. What's the big deal? I repented. I believed in Jesus. Aren't I in? You know, like, isn't that the goal? But th that would be something like a hot air b balloon crew popping the champagne cork when they're 20 feet off the ground, when they've just broken free of the tethers. And, and maybe they have a paying passenger aboard, and the, the paying passenger's like, that's it? And the balloon crew is looking at him like, what more do you want from me? And the guy's like, I want to go to the skies, man. Take me to the skies. If you are indeed a Christian, what did God predestine you for? Let's keep reading Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Yes, your destiny, which has been predestined, is not just inside the wicket gate. Your destiny is the celestial city, the home of the righteous ones who have now been made perfect. Your destiny is full conformity to the image of Christ. And God is so good to begin that work in earnest in us through the time of our earthly sojourn. Let's keep reading. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The point is, if you can find yourself or your brother or your sister on this chain, then you can be absolutely confident based on the call of God that Paul's prayer for you or for them, for your sanctification or for their sanctification, will most certainly be answered. But we can also be confident based on God's career. Look at his track record. He has fulfilled every promise that he has ever made. Right now, in his presence, in glory, are a multitude of these righteous ones that he has already made perfect. Friends, the Lord is faithful. He has brought sanctification to, all the way to completion in billions of cases. And I'm confident that he will do the same for you. Well, that's almost it for family prayers. Except, hold on. Verse 15. Here Paul and Silas and Timothy are asking the Thessalonians to pray for them. What? Paul, don't you understand? You're an apostle. You're, you're a, 
Actually, you're a superstar, spiritually speaking. These are baby Christians. I get you praying for them, but really, you want them praying for you? And, and Paul would certainly say, not only can they pray for us, they must. We are in need of sanctification just as much as they are. When it comes to the need for personal holiness, there's no hierarchy here. Every member of the family stands equally desperate, needy for the Lord to work in them. So friends, let's pray for each other along these lines. I'll, I'll pray for you. I do pray for you along these lines. And you, please, pray for me. This passage also shows us, and here's our second point, family affection. Family affection. My wife and I were recently telling some folks uh, the story of a time when we were first married, and we were living in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was attending seminary at the time, and Jamie's brother, Shannon, had also just moved to Louisville to start his seminary studies. So we invited him to a church function um, that, that we had. I, if I recall, it was a game of pickup football that we were playing on the, the University of Louisville fields. And Jamie and her brother, being very close siblings, they, they were engaged in horseplay. Okay, so Jamie was laughing her head off as, as her brother was tickling her or whatever. I forget exactly what it was. Anywho, a friend of mine, he saw this taking place, and we didn't know this till afterwards. The, uh, the next day, his wife told us at church what had happened. But my friend Nathan, he was almost sick to his stomach all night long, thinking about what he had just witnessed, okay, and how he was going to have to have an excruciating conversation with me the next day about how my new wife was shamelessly flirting with this brand new guy that just came to town. Well, my friend Nathan was very relieved when his wife laughed and said, that's her brother. And yeah, you can imagine the relief that he felt. But that, that's what family does. We're affectionate with one another. We genuinely love one another. And we really like being together. And that fact should be evident in the way that we interact with one another. And so Paul gives this instruction in verse 26. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. That's a very common command in Paul's letters. It's given to various churches that he writes to. And so we're right to conclude that the holy kiss is a thing. It's a thing. And it, it, it was the way, and in many cases it still is the way, that many cultures greet one another. You know, you see this today, especially in Europe and South America. And if we had more time, we could, we could kind of track this particular greeting forward through, throughout church history. And we'd see, if we did that, that it wasn't very long before there were abuses of this practice. One early church father had to address the problem in his, in, in his churches 
of some people engaging in open mouth holy kissing. So in time, you know, the practice got revised to, you know, just greeting only members of your same sex with a holy kiss. And then, and then sometime later, the practice dropped off altogether. And if we fast forwarded all the way to the present, I think an honest analysis would reveal that we are deathly afraid of there being any kind of impropriety that we've created a, a Christian culture in which there is a ton of awkwardness between the sexes in the church. You know, ours, we live in the era of the dreaded side hug. You know, the, the wooden pats on the back, the pence rule, where, where women are, are looked at suspiciously as potential seductresses, and men are viewed suspiciously as potential predators. I don't think it's healthy. And, and then Paul writes elsewhere that, that these man-made rules, quote, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So before you know it, we're miles apart from the apostolic command to greet one another with a holy kiss. And have, have we, as a church culture, you know, writ large, have we, have we done a good job of stemming the tide of a sexual impropriety? No, e even this week, a prominent pastor has to be removed temporarily from his position, not for engaging in all of that, but for texting a, a woman in his congregation in an overly familiar sort of a way. And, and the, the pa his fellow elders said that that was a sign of, of something unhealthy in him. I want you to notice the adjective in holy kiss. This is a holy kiss. Do you have a category for that? Do you, do you understand that it is possible to show affection, even physical affection, without being a perv? Jamie does that with her brother. I kiss my mom on the lips. I kiss my son on the lips, the younger one. <laughs> Paul, Paul writes to Timothy, Paul writes this to Timothy, treat younger women like sisters with absolute purity. And, and what we desperately need, people, is not more rules. That church doesn't go back to the drawing board and say, well, I guess now we need to make a bunch of rules for social media and, and for DMing. No, you don't need more rules. What we desperately need is holiness. Yeah, it's a sign of unhealth. It's a sign of a need for holiness. I'll just leave it at that, okay? Bottom line is that we as the family of God, ought to have deep affection for one another. And that looks like something. Notice very quickly in the third place, hang with me please, some family instructions. Families always receive instructions together. It was, it was a joke among my siblings that, you know, when we were growing up, that whenever we were out on a family 
um, excursion, or maybe we were visiting another family from the church, went there for supper, whatever it was. If it was getting late, you know, we were driving home, there was a very specific point in the trip that my dad would begin giving us instructions. It was exactly halfway up the mountain. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a mountain. It, uh, looking back, it wasn't even really a hill. Um, it, it's smaller than the Wayland Hill. But, you know, halfway up the, the escarpment, exactly 10 minutes from home, I don't, I don't know if he planned this, but my dad would, would begin. He'd say, now, David, when we get home, I want you to open the garage door for us. Uh, there were, were no remotes. Uh, take out the garbage. Debbie is first in the bathroom tonight. One bathroom, four kids had to take turns. Debbie's the first in the bathroom. Jeremy, you're to help me unload the trunk, and so on and so forth. It, it went, and we'd laugh, but it was, it was great. We received these instructions together as a family, and, and that's part of the beauty of being a church family. Of course, we were to intake instruction individually, you know, privately. We're to, we're to be under the word, but there's something very powerful, wouldn't you agree, about sitting together under the authority of the word of God? And again, it has that equalizing effect. There, perhaps there were some leaders in the Thessalonian church that, that wrongly believed that this letter from the Apostle Paul was, was theirs and to be held by them. Perhaps there were members who weren't present on that day that it was received and read. But this is an important letter. It was, and I think there's lots of indication to believe that even the earliest churches believed those letters to be scripture. God's inspired word for them. This, this is the, the content that would nourish them and establish them and encourage them in the faith. And so here at the close of the letter, Paul admonishes them very strongly, in fact, even to the point of holding them to an oath that this letter is to be read to all the brothers. And likewise, friends, we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We are to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to the expositional preaching of Scripture. I'm under this word just as much as you are, and together we hear, and together we grow in holiness. Family prayers, family affection, family instructions, and finally, family farewells. Imagine you're the Apostle Paul at this point. Imagine the heartache involved in signing off from a letter to a congregation that you genuinely love. This is a congregation that you, you were drawn to and, and the bonds of affection grew almost immediately and yet you were torn away from this congregation by persecution. You had to get out of Dodge in the middle of the night. This is a congregation that the Apostle Paul has been dying to return to. He wanted to see them face to face and this letter has had to suffice but now the letter's over and it's back to silence and separation. What do you do? What do you do? Perhaps you are in a situation where you had to leave your family to take a job, move to a new state, 
You've left your church family. What do you do? How, how do you carry on when a loved one is stuck in a foreign country? When you're hurting, when you feel so helpless, what do you do? What do you do when you marry off a daughter? I, I've always kind of been in awe of Brian Jacobs, but I was never more in awe of him than I am having witnessed him give away his daughter. How do you do that? How do you, you know, when, when the officiant says, uh, who gives this woman to be married to this man? That's not just a perfunctory thing that you say. That is profound. And how do you as a father give your daughter to some dude? <laughs> Thankfully, in this case, it's a good dude. But still, but, but still, what do you do? And friends, the only thing that you can do in all of those cases is leave those people in the care of the Lord. Commit them to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you may not be able to be with them, but surely goodness and mercy shall follow them all the days of their life. The, the grace of the Lord Jesus will be with them, which is to say, that's just a, a reverse way of saying that Christ himself will be with them. His own dear presence to cheer and to guide with strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. That, that's what you're committing. That's what, that's what you do. Commit your friends and your family and your church family into that grace, into that Christ. Your, your confidence in the face of separated family members is that Jesus himself is with them in all of his glorious grace, sanctifying them making them spotless, preparing them for that walk down the aisle on that great day. And so I'll pray the same. I'll, I'll say the same to you as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.